is called the, the hard sayings of Jesus. Um, the more you look at what Jesus says, the more comforting and reassuring, but also uh, that it can be uh, challenging and, and um, encourage you to read the scriptures. They, even if you've read them many times, to, to pray afresh each time and say, Lord, uh, let me know you better through them. And as I, I read the scriptures myself again and again, I'm kind of caught up and, and find that there is always fresh inspiration, fresh challenge. We've been particularly focusing on what are called the harder sayings of Jesus, uh, not because we want to make our lives difficult, but also uh, to be honest and true to the scriptures, not just to preach the easy bits, but the whole wonderful counsel of God as we find in the Bible. So I'm going to read a, a bit of a longer passage, but for, I'll let you know when we get to the particular bit that's I thought is hard, or would be hard, thought of as hard. So uh, Matthew seven thirteen through to the um, to chapter uh, to verse twenty nine. The words come at towards the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, "Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction." And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And these are the bits to focus on this morning, but hear them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only, though, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus, thank you that your words still are amazing. They still provoke and shock, and they still pierce to the heart, and they still convey truth, and they still propel us to the Father. 
And I pray that the words that I say about these scriptures would be helpful. And that you would draw each and every one of us closer to you. May none of us leave discouraged, but built up and strengthened and exhorted, and I hope perhaps challenged too. In Jesus' name, amen. In the summer that just gone, I had uh, the experience that many of you, I'm sure, will have experienced. And uh, I, I began to realize maybe the source of many gray hairs. I'm not uh, wanting to look any particular one in the face. You see, what happened was I gave up my seat in the front of the car and moved to the passenger side in order to let someone uh, new behind the wheel. Have you been there? Some of you nodding. Uh, not just another driver, but a learner driver, a beginner. It's an experience, isn't it? It's a salutary lesson of not being in control and indeed uh, spurs one's prayer life, I have to say. Uh, you'll be glad to know this wasn't on a highway or a, a road where there was traffic or that you would be on, but it was actually uh, off-road and on some sort of small roads on a field. Uh, we weren't in danger of hitting anyone else. The new driver in question was uh, my godson Isaac. Uh, he had just got his provisional. He'd been on plen- in plenty of cars, and he's even played on games, uh, on devices, Xboxes and the like, in which he's driven race cars very quickly around a track. And indeed, he has been for many hours in his life in various vehicles and probably has noticed what goes on in front of him as he's gone from place to place. He quickly learned that there's more to driving than simply holding the steering wheel. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with a set of warning signs. In other words, following Jesus is not just a matter of of us holding on to the steering wheel and hoping for the best. I discovered that my godson doesn't quite know the difference between left and right. Seem to be fairly arbitrary. There's more than just hoping for the best. There is a need to concentrate, to take note, to get stuck in and to be active. And so the Sermon on the Mount closes with these three warnings as Jesus describes and outlines and reveals, draws by the curtain on the fullness of what it means to be followers in the kingdom. As I said, three, uh, three warnings, a bit like a succession of signs on the motorway, on the journey of faith in which we are. Firstly, he, he uh, characterizes about the wide and the narrow gate. In effect, he's saying, watch out for people who will lead you off down the wrong road. Don't just tag along with others that you think will get you there in the end. Or don't think that actually there's a series of roads that you just take your pick and enjoy the journey and we'll all end up in the same place after all at the end. No. Jesus is quite categoric. There is a wide and a narrow, but the small one leads to life. The contrast Jesus makes 
is astonishing. In, in, in the culture, they would hear that, know that cities are walled, and in order to get into cities, one had to pass through gates, many of which would be small. I thought about a way of describing it. If we, we have the privilege of being uh, in, in the, the lovely Cotswolds, most of us, or nearby, and with a, a degree of, uh, of countryside around us. And uh, it's a little bit like, I know Jesus didn't say this, but um, a good illustration perhaps, is uh, you end up on that walk at some point, whether you're on a Christmas walk or a family walk or with a a bunch of friends, and you get on your path, your trail to the kissing gate. Do you know what I mean? The horror of every teenager. The kissing gate. Uh, What are they about? Well, you have to go through them one by one. Entry matters. You don't get there by accident. You have to pass through. But in order to pass through, you need to decide. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as he's pictured and described, says that choice matters as well as action. But not just the outward. It also involves the motive of the heart. Motives mass matter. Learning to follow Jesus and to know God as the Father matter, not only in life now, but also in the ultimate destination to which we are all called. The wide and the narrow road. We're all following someone. That we may hear other voices which say, come this way, or no, no, this way. Or maybe there's just that thought that drops into our mind from time to time and thinking, did Jesus really say that? Did it really matter that much? It seems Jesus is being a bit strict. Perhaps there's a bit more leniency than I'd imagine. Take heed. Enter through the narrow gate. The first warning. As he draws to a close, he, he then warns against false prophets. He says, be on your guard about those who claim to speak for God, but lead people the wrong way. And he says, the trouble with this is it's really not that easy to spot. He says, the thing is, he says that false prophets seem to be very nice. He describes it like this. They come in sheep's clothing. They seem reasonable, plausible, and trustworthy. I mean, if if a wolf appeared with its fangs bared and its claws out, we'd know, wouldn't we? Danger. But false prophets don't do that. Outwardly, they look like sheep, but inwardly, they're only thinking about eating sheep. In other words, using us for for their purposes. Jude, in his short letter later in the New Testament, in uh, verses 12 to 16, describes something of, uh, of the challenge of these false prophets, these false envoys. He says, these people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn leaves without fruit and uprooted twice dead. And he says, these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, when you were to test a prophet, 
who declared to, to say something on behalf of God, to lead and instruct God's people. The way that you tested if what they said was true was to wait and see. In other words, if it came to pass, what they had declared happened, that would be a, a conclusion that what they said was true and is of God. If it didn't, ignore them. Actually, it tells us to stone them because they were lying. They were falsely speaking. Now, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus doesn't ask us to pick up rocks, as Phil referenced in another context last week. But also, he doesn't let us just kind of sit and wait and see, and see if a prophet says something or a spokesperson for God tells you uh, that it will happen, and we just have to sit back and wait and see, and the jury is out until there's a conclusion. But rather, Jesus says, there's another test, another way of discerning. You see, following Jesus, he's drawing this point, is not just a matter of looking at the outward and the appearance and what is kind of plain to see. It's not simply enough to look the part. They've got the woolly jumper on and they seem to be nice. You see, what Jesus is saying is look beneath, look within. It's easy to be masquerading. It's not enough just to go through the motion, but to look within. By their fruits, you will recognize them. Maybe they outwardly are the ones who sit and know much, but they're easily offended when their relationship with God is questioned. They have the appearance of followers, people of God, but not the substance. That very often those who are wolves have their system taught in a series of rules taught by people, and yet not filled in their heart and spirit by the Holy Spirit. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus is reminding us, that only the Holy Spirit produces godly fruit. Jesus is even more incisive. He says, look at the life of the person who is offering you advice, seeking to teach you and disciple, seeking to lead you in the ways of God. And he describes it a bit like, you know, an obvious lesson. Again, at harvest from the countryside. If I was to take you to an orchard, and present you with two trees, would you opt for the tree where the fruit is lush and healthy and the tree looks good and there's people feasting on it and doing well? Or if I gave you the alternative and said, here is another tree, but all the leaves are crinkled and virus-ridden and the fruit is sickly and rotting and, and kind of full of canker, which would you prove, which would you choose? I mean, it's not a difficult question, is it? One is leading people to get sick, and the other is leading people to become healthy and growing strong. What fruit is produced? Really practical, helpful insight. You know, we, we live in an age and an era where 
we are able to pick so much spiritual fruit. We're able to learn from and gain from uh, all sorts of opportunities. The books that we can read are a plenty. Uh, if you go to a Christian conference or even to Amazon or a Christian bookseller, there's a multiplicity of, of literature and much of it is good, but not all of it. The difficulty for us in this age when we are able to click a button and uh, receive kind of information is that we actually don't know what the fruit is, what the life looks like of the author, of the one who is bringing that to us. I know that, uh, and I do too, I, I, I listen to podcasts of other preachers and other, uh, other sermons and, and all that, and I'm, I'm nourished by it, but I actually don't know about them. You may do that yourselves. You may think, well, I'll come to church on Sunday because the coffee's good, but that preacher's a bit ropey. But I'll get my fix of, uh, of insight later on from another place. Well, great. You know, be fed from the scriptures and be uh, helped through the, uh, the wisdom and teaching of others. But one of the benefits of being gathered in a local church together is you get to know kind of what Philip and I are like as the principal preachers. And you get to assess our fruit. I'm challenging myself because you might say to me at the door, well, I'm not listening to you ever again. Maybe I need to hear that. We may not be the best, world's best preachers, but you are able to observe in your small group leaders and as we are a congregation of disciples seeking to make disciples, who we are, of how we show Not just the outward, but the inward matters. Following Jesus is not just a matter of the outward and the appearance, the semblance of faith, but what is coming from within. There was an article, if you read it, I think it was... uh, Christianity Today, which had an article just in the, the latest edition talking about how uh, the church needs to move with the times and, and um, uh, really kind of um, embrace modern technology. And, and yes, to a degree, but I think there's something that really matters, not just of, of consuming remotely, but of living up close and bumping together and seeing what fruit comes from within. You may or may not be aware of it, but there was, there was a, a, a little bit of an issue with, with um, an international kind of well-known uh, teacher who was caught in, in a conference saying some things that didn't exemplify good fruit. Not making, well, I am making a judgment, actually. Because I think what came out in that conference wasn't helpful and demonstrated more of what was within And thirdly, the third warning sign comes up about true and false disciples. And this is where it becomes hard. Check yourself. Check yourself because the words of Jesus are quite blunt. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. If we have any sense of humility, we often put ourselves in that place and think, what will Jesus say to me? 
The first two signs speak about the here and now. They, they speak about the call to choose the right road, to choose the narrow, to choose the Jesus way, to enter, as John would phrase it in his gospel, through the narrow gate, through Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And then he goes on to speak about um, these, uh, the issues of, uh, of the, the true and the false prophet. In other words, how do we uh, feed ourselves? How are we discipled? Who do we look to for inspiration to model what it looks like to follow Jesus? And then this third sign, which almost looks, well, it does look forward. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven on that day. How will we come up? It seems to me in this hard saying of Jesus, the implication is there are people who can do remarkable and may do remarkable things in Jesus' name, but without knowing him personally. As hard as that may be to hear. That the outward signs of of amazing deeds might not be a final indication of whether someone really belongs to Jesus or not. In some senses, that can be encouraging. In, in my life and as, a, as a minister, it's a really great tendency to look at other leaders or other people I think I'm not like, I wish I was more like them. I'd accomplished more like them. I'd written more books. I've not written any. You know, if I'd written more like them or have the opportunity to speak at this or that. Or it may be that it's a bit like um, you're sitting here today and you're looking around you and, and you're looking at other Christians here, other people to whom you respect. and think, I wish I was like them because they've got it sort of, they kind of really proper believers. They just ooze Christ-likeness. Their fruit is great. And you kind of think, well, they're all right, but I'm not. The encouragement of this is that the outward doesn't matter. What matters is the inward. It's not a question of the compare game, the comparison of how do I match up? How do I rank? Am I good or better in in the outward, the mighty deeds or not? But this is a really encouragement that that the faithful, the acclaimed, the celebrated, those who will hear that wonderful pronouncement from the Lord himself, I know you. It's about the quality and the conviction, the depth of your faith and what you do with that. And it isn't assessed by your works, necessarily. You can be the most unknown, uncelebrated. No one maybe knows because you do it in secret, the quantity and quality of your faith life. The caring, the consistent, loving support of a, a neighbor who is vulnerable or an elderly parent or a disabled child. Or you're contending on your knees for the things of the kingdom. Not necessarily to say how many people have you kind of could celebrate and quote your name. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
that this is really, really important in our day and age, as with the day and age of Jesus, because he said it to them and for all of us to gain from. The challenge is that, that we can get so caught up with the crowd and like to be with the popular rather than with Jesus. The stark truth of what he says is also that there are some who've done great deeds that turn out to be false prophets, be evil workers, evil doers. That's quite a big swallow. This hard saying at the end, I never knew you away from me, is a hard saying. Causes us to reflect. But just bear in mind, as, as a way of understanding that, he then goes on to use this small parable of, of the rock in the sand. It's worth bearing in mind that those who build a house on a rock and the sand both experience storms. That the storms of life happen. It's not just those who are virtuous and blessed who sail through life unhindered and blissfully unaware of trials and difficulties. Not at all. This little parable could be a parable, could be a wise saying, probably acts on both levels, but it is still true. He explains it. Those who hear him and do what he says are counterpoised to those who hear him and don't do what he says. This little parable implies the whole of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount in summation, in drawing people to a decision, drawing people to a recognition that is not just enough to say, oh, that's nice. But what do we make of it? That the narrow gate and the, the wide road is not about doctrinal correctness, but actually about obedience, about a choice, a confidence of Jesus is necessary to being a disciple, a follower. But it's not necessary for you as a, as a follower of Jesus to know everything about theology. Hooray, actually. What do I mean? Well, if it was a case that we had to know everything and be able to sort of quote some long compendium of theology and, and finish a kind of degree course to say, yeah, now I'm in because I know enough, that would exclude those who can't read, those who have learning difficulties. And yet, those aren't the criteria of faith. That deep trust in Jesus is what matters. And the opposite is also true. That even if you did have a, a great knowledge of truth and, and know kind of the scriptures inside out and could quote verse here and there, if your heart's still of hatred and unforgiveness, it hasn't gone down. The heart isn't changed. You're still on the broad road or haven't entered in through the narrow gate. You see, what Jesus is driving at at the Sermon on the Mount is not just a manifesto, but about the call to follow, to be the disciple, about being the apprentice of becoming like him. If I'm a Jesus disciple, if I'm a Jesus follower, if you are, 
It means that I want to be with him, to learn from him, and how to be like him. If I was uh, traveling from London to Los Angeles, uh, sorry, if you were traveling from London to Los Angeles and, and I wanted to sit next to you on that journey, I wouldn't do so by going to Berlin. Obviously. In order to be with you, I would need to sit with you and share the same journey. If we want to follow Jesus, we need to be with him. To go his ways. You may say, well, how do we do that? It's okay for these disciples. They could, they could hang out with Jesus. He was there physically present with them. Well, don't forget in John 14, Jesus promises, even though he is going to go away, it's good because he will send another helper, the counselor, the comforter, the alongside one who will lead you in my ways. So this call to follow We rightly make and emphasize the need to make a decision for Jesus. Come and believe. Come and be born again. Come and start with Jesus. Salvation is by faith alone. Absolutely. But simply to talk about, well, you know, become a Christian and and that's okay, isn't enough. Purposefully, uh, I'm proud to to be called a Christian, but I often change the language and talk about being a follower of Jesus. A disciple. No wonder the early followers of Jesus were called followers of the way. They ended up getting called Christians as an insult. Little Christ. Well, if that's what it applies to us, that we are little Christs, then great. But if it's just some sort of cultural baggage, then no. Remember, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, at the end of, of uh, the gospel story that records from Matthew, go and make disciples, not just converts, not just those who kind of assent in some way, but who follow and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Part of our vision as a, as a church is to make disciples, to proclaim Jesus, yes, but to make disciples. And it doesn't happen by accident. It has to be intended and has to be worked on and worked through. And that's where the rubber hits the road. Who we are matters. Not just as as individuals, but as his people together, as the body of Christ, the church. That in these three warning signs, Jesus speaks uh, that we may see at the outward, but actually it's what is in the heart, the inward, the, 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 the heart, and then the outward action that matters. It begins with that decision, of course, and that decision is worked out day by day in that reorientation, that new direction of life. The challenge of this phrase, I never knew you, should call all of us to draw closer to Jesus afresh. Not to hear it and say, well, it's ambiguous, I'm going to kind of, it's too fearful, I'm just going to give up. But to hear that he is the one who is the saviour and calls us to follow him and calls us to follow him day by day by day to experience God's power and walk with him. The Gospels so often show us 
an amazing way. But so often we're in danger of reversing what he says. What do I mean? So often as a church, we, we define ourselves about rules or who belongs. And there's kind of like almost a way of defining that. As long as you match up to a certain kind of perspective of what it looks like to be okay. The outward. But Jesus puts himself in the middle and says, come and follow me. And calls people to follow him. And all sorts of people do. The religious do. And the wise do. And the most broken do. And it seems to me that no matter where you start... Of the most broken and the most desperate and the most messed up, like the prostitute or or the most sick or the most uh, kind of marginalized because you have betrayed so many people. That when Jesus says, come follow you, as long as you turn to him and start to center your life, to, to make him your goal and your focus and to walk with him. In other words, he becomes your direction and your goal. You become and belong. But those who have defined themselves by, well, I follow the rules and I I look like I should be acceptable because I wear the right things or say the right things or I'm in the right places. Jesus says, you're far from me because you're looking at the outward, not the inward, the direction of travel. In Luke's gospel in chapter 6, in Luke's recording of this teaching, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and did not do what I say? In our church, which is charismatic and evangelical, and in our world we encourage each other to grow in, there is a tendency to substitute enthusiasm and vigor and, pa- and, and passion, and maybe the more spectacular, for actually the stuff, the nub, the focus here is for unglamorous obedience, even in the midst of suffering. The call to follow. I want to close with a, a poem written by Robert Frost, uh, The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverge in a yellow wood, and, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood and looked down as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves, no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverge in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Let's pray together.